Well, I, I told the, the first service, I, I hope you wore some comfortable shoes because we've got some ground to cover. All right, so take your Bible and turn to 1 John chapter 5. Be in 1 John 5, 1 through 12, the passage that Pastor Sam read for us just a few moments ago. As we, as we come to this epistle, I want to remind you that, that John is writing to believers in need of assurance. He's writing to, to churches who have been rocked by false teaching. And to make matters worse, it, it, was, it was actually some of their own pastors, some of their own teachers who had promoted this false teaching. And over time, some of the church members came, came around to this false teaching. And, and when the, the, the teachers or the pastors uh, who were promoting this false teaching left the church, many of these church members went with them. And you can imagine how confusing, how discouraging, how disorienting this time must have been for this believers. We can imagine how just off balance they must have felt. But the truth is, we don't only have to imagine how they felt, right? Our social media is filled with stories of deconversion. Folks who at one time were committed to Christ and his church, but who have since left both. We know of stories of trusted pastors and teachers who have fallen into sin and, and some who have fallen completely away from Christ. We're familiar with popular Christian teachers and authors who have strayed away from the message once delivered to the saints, the apostolic message of Christ's identity. And these things are difficult. They're disheartening for us. They can even be doubt-inducing. And sometimes those doubts are even more personal, right? We have doubts about ourselves. We have front row seats to our own struggles and to our own failings in sin. And at times we just wonder, not only is, is the gospel true, but is this true of me? Is Christ actually at work in me? If it was true of me, then why the struggle? Why the hardship? How can we know? Can we know this morning? Well, friends, there is good news this morning. John has written for people like me and you, people who are often assaulted with doubts from within and from without. And John wants you to know that you can know. About 30 times in this short letter, John says, you can know. And often he speaks about the assurance and the confidence that you can have that this gospel is true. Christ is. Jesus is, in fact, the Christ, the Son of God. It's true, and you can know it's true in your life, that the gospel is true in your life. This morning, I want to point out two testimonies that John gives us, two witnesses that testify to the truthfulness of the gospel and the authenticity of your faith. Two testimonies that, that help us have confidence that our faith is real if it's placed in Jesus. And the gospel is true. 
Two testimonies, the testimony of grace and the testimony of God. Let's consider the testimony of grace that we find here in the first five verses of this chapter. Now, if you were paying attention, when Pastor Sam was reading, you're reading along, you, you may think, well, I, I, I didn't hear the word grace. You're looking back through the first five verses there and said, Jared, grace isn't here. And it's true, the word's not there. In fact, the word's not in the epistle. But the truth is here. Grace is here. We see it in verse one. Look again. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Now look at that again. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Now we, we might have said it this way. We're, we're born again. We have new life in God because we believe that Jesus is the Christ. Or, or we have new life when we believe that Jesus is the Christ. But that's not what John says. He says that you believe, that you have faith because you have already been born. That's the first cause in this verse. You have been born of God, therefore you believe. Now that may make your head spin a little bit this morning. You may think, well, it seems like John's getting a little technical here about the order of salvation. But friends, I want you to know this is not a technicality. This is not a detail that that doesn't matter. It's significant because, friends, this is where your confidence begins. The confidence is that this work isn't your doing. It's the doing of God. This work doesn't start with you. It's not even dependent first and foremost on your faith, but the work of new life that God has done in you through Jesus Christ. It's the work of regeneration. Paul speaks of this in Ephesians 2. That when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together in Christ by grace. This is a story, a testimony of grace. So as we read 1 John and we hear him encouraging us to live out the Christian life, I want you to know, friends, this is first not a message of that you have to try to live up to the Christian life. It's first a message that God has put new life in you through Christ. It's a story of grace. So how would you know if you've been given this new life? How would you know if this miracle of regeneration has taken place in your heart? Well, John gives us three signs here. And the the first sign is this. The first sign of new birth is belief. It's faith. You believe. You, You know you've been born again if you believe. You see that in verse one again. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And friends, I want you to notice, it's not just ambiguous faith here. If you've been born again, if you've experienced this new birth, it's not just that you're a person of faith. It's not just that you become a spiritual person or a religious person. Notice what John says here. He says this will produce a certain kind of faith with a certain and specific object. The the object of your faith will be Jesus. You will believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the long-awaited promised Savior sent to take away the sins of the world. Not only the object of faith, John says there will be a certain weightiness of faith. This is more than just having a, a favorable view of Jesus. 
It's not just that you think good thoughts about Jesus or you would vote for Jesus if he was on the ballot. Yeah, he's, he seems great. No, this is, this is more than that. This is more just an opti- than just an optimism. This, there's a weight. The idea is that we would put our full trust, the full trust of our life in Christ, that we would trust him with our sins, that we would trust him with our life, that we would trust him with our eternity. Maybe you've heard the story of John Patton, who was a Scottish missionary to the people of the islands of the South Pacific. And part of his ministry among them was to to translate the Bible in their language. But as he was working on the translation, he realized they don't have a word for trust. They don't have a word for faith. Now it's hard to translate the Bible if you don't have a word for faith and trust. He wondered about this until one day he, he witnessed two hunters coming back from a long day of hunting weary and exhausted they plopped down in a chair and they they commented how good it is for us to stretch ourselves out here and he said I've got it I've got my word and he translated faith to stretch yourself out on faith friend today is your life stretched out upon the Lord Jesus Christ Friend, it's not the question of, do you have one foot in with Jesus? But, you know, really the other, the Monday through Saturday foot is, is really in the world. Are you straddling? I love Jesus kind of, but, but really my, my heart's with the world. Are you straddling? Or is your, the full weight of your confidence of your life on Jesus? I am trusting him today. And friend, I want to encourage you because I think John wants to give us some encouragement here. You, you may have come in and thought, I'm, boy, the testimony of grace Assurance, confidence, I don't have much. I, I am, I, I'd probably say I'm not much of a Christian. I'm really struggling. I'm discouraged. I'm, I'm that doubtful, doubtful person. Well, well, friends, I want you to know that if today you might come in here and all you can say is, I, I'm struggling, but, but I do know this, and I do believe this with all my heart. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that's my only hope. Friend, be encouraged. That's the work of God in your life. That's the evidence of the new life. That's evidence of regeneration. Don't discount that. That is the work of the Spirit in you, giving testimony that you've experienced life in Christ. The testimony of grace. You believe. But also the testimony is that this. You can know that you've been born again. Know you have this new life if you love. You love. Look in The end of verse one, everyone who loves the father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that that we love the children of God when we love God and keep and obey his commandments. If you've been tracking with 1 John this summer, you know that this is not a new topic for John. Love is nothing new for the apostle of love, who I think maybe 40 times in his short epistle mentions love. But every time John comes back to a truth that he's already taught, he does so, and he adds, he does so by adding some more detail. I thought this week he's like a painter who, who paints the canvas, but then he's always coming back adding more detail. If you've seen Bob Ross, you know exactly what I mean. <laughs> always coming back. John does that. He comes back to a, a part of the canvas where he's already put some paint, but he adds some more detail. And the detail here. Notice in verse 2, the detail is this, that we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. That's new. 
John has been emphasizing that we, we know we love God when we love others and keep his commandments. But here he flips it around. He says, you know you love others when you love God and obey him. Again, that's a little bit of a head scratcher. John, what do you mean? What do you mean that we love others by loving God and keeping his commandments? Well, I think there's a lot that John means, but I just want to point out one thing. I think John has this in mind, that we love others best when we love God most. We love others best when we love God most. What you love most, you will commend best, naturally. My children were, most of them were in the first service, and something's true about them. They, they love baseball. They love baseball. They even love my losing team. Where do they get that? Not from Sarah. She has nothing to do with it. They get it from me. And the truth is, I love baseball. I'm, I'm not, I wouldn't consider myself a fanatical fan. We don't always have it on the TV. But it's a love that's just naturally ingrained in me. And I just naturally commend it to my children. And they pick up on that. What you love, you will naturally commend. Through your words and your actions, the flavor of your life will commend that thing. Friend, does your life commend God to others? Do you love him in such a way that you commend him to others? Friends, the most loving thing you could do for this church, for your neighbors, for your children, for your spouse, for your grandkids, for your community group, is to love God with all your heart and to obey him, commend him. You don't, you don't have to have a lot. You don't have to know a lot. You don't have to be a lot to leave a legacy that speaks volumes about God. Love him and obey his commandments and your life will leave a legacy. This is the testimony of grace that we believe and we love. And John adds, adds, a, adds a third thing and it's connected to love. The testimony of grace is that we obey. And this is one of the primary ways that we love God is by obeying him. If you've been born again, you believe and you love and you love others and you love God by obeying God and keeping his commandments. Again, he's, he's revisiting a familiar truth here there in verse three. For this is love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Familiar truth, but a new detail comes back and adds more detail. And what's the detail here? His commands are not burdensome. Is that surprising to you? Is it surprising to you that commands are not burdensome? I don't know about you, but I often find I don't like being told what to do. I react poorly to that. But John says one of the evidences of the new birth is that God's commands are no longer burdensome. They're no longer burdensome in the sense that they're no longer drudgery. And they're no longer burdensome in the sense that they're no longer impossible to attain. How can you say that, John? Well, he tells us. Thankfully, he tells us in verse 4. For, this is the reason, everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Again, we're back to the new birth. God's commands are not burdensome. They're not drudgery. They're not impossibly high, unattainable. Why? 
Because of the new birth. Because God has done something in you. He has changed your heart. He has empowered you, enabled you to obey his commands. Before, Scripture describes our hearts before this new birth, our hearts were cold and hard. They were hearts of stone that resisted God's authority in his rightful place. But the work of, the regener- of regeneration, the work of the Spirit softens our hearts. It, 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 it makes our hearts alive so that we can obey him and obey him with joy. I love what Philippians 2, 13 says. That when God is doing a work in his spirit in you, he will both will and do of his good pleasure. That means, friends, God's commands are not burdensome. If the spirit is at work in you, he will give you the ability and the desire, the will to obey. We don't do that perfectly, but he moves our hearts towards obedience. This is one of the testimonies. Friends, there is We've seen in, in 1 John, there, there are great enemies standing against us. The ruler of this world, the evil one, the world, and its system, its sinful system, and even our own sinful flesh. But John says, by the power of the, the new birth, that greater is the one that is in you than the one that is in the world. Praise the Lord. Just last week, we were watching some of the documentaries on the Apollo 11 uh, lunar landing. And my, my daughter, who's nine, was watching it with me. And we watched Apollo 11 being rocketed from the launch pad. And we watched as it reached speeds immediately of 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, 4,000, 5,000 miles per hour. And my daughter said, Dad, it takes a lot of speed and power to break Earth's gravitational pull. I said, well said, little astronaut. But that's true in our own life. That those who have been born of God have received power through the Spirit to overcome the pull of this world's system and even our own fleshly desires. We overcome through Jesus. And that's what we see in verse 4. Twice overcome is used in verse 4. The first time, it's the sense that you are overcoming. I know you're struggling, but you're overcoming. How can that be true? Because of the second overcome. Because Jesus has already overcome. Friend, you battle sin. You battle against this world's sinful system. Not from a place of defeat, but from a place of victory. It doesn't mean it's going to be easy. But the, but the war is certain. The war has been decided. We battle from a place of victory through Jesus. He has overcome. Friends, John wants you to have confidence not in yourself not by looking at yourself but by looking at God's work of grace in your life if you're a believer you have a testimony of grace it's not perfect it's not fully grown but it is his spirit at work within you you believe you love you obey more and more what a testimony all to the praise of his glorious grace and friends, today, the, the other side is, too, is true. If you listen to this testimony, you, you say, that's just, none of that resonates with me. Friend, consider, have you put your trust in Jesus Christ? Can you relate it all to this testimony of the new birth? 
is their love and a desire to obey, to overcome. Is that in you at all? If not, come to Jesus. Put your faith in Jesus today. But friends, there's another, another testimony in our passage today, something that's even more reliable than your own experience of grace. And John's gonna tell us it's even more reliable than his own eyewitness testimony. You say, what could be more reliable than my experience and an eyewitness account of Jesus' life and death and resurrection? Well, John says, it's the testimony of God. When God gives a testimony, it's the most sure thing in all the world, in all the universe. And it's God's testimony through his spirit that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God. Look at this in verse six. Here's the testimony through his spirit. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the spirit is the one who testifies because the spirit is truth. The Spirit is testifying that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Again, we've seen this in John's epistle, and we've seen it in John's gospel. John told us that one of the primary roles of the, of the Spirit is to testify to the, of the truth of who Jesus is. Remember John 15, 26? Jesus made this promise. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Friends, you want to know if the Spirit of God is at work in a church? You don't always have to look for the supernatural things going on or experiences. There will be some amazing things that happen, but if you want to know if the Spirit of God is at work at a place, ask the question, is Jesus Christ being lifted up as the Son of God, the Christ? If he is, that's a work of the Spirit. Well, how does the Spirit testify to Jesus? Two ways. One we might call, the first we might call a historical testimony. This is in verses six through nine. This is he who came by the water and the blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that testify, the spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his son. Now, admittedly, th this is a difficult passage. I think Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones commented that this is the toughest section of John's epistle. And then he went on to say, it's the toughest in the whole Bible. <laughs> I don't know about that. I think the truth is clear. But, but the question in this passage is, what is John referring to? The water and the blood. And how does the Spirit testify through the water and the blood that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? Well, well some have thought maybe this is speaking to communion and uh, baptism, or maybe a reference to Jesus's death in John 19. But, but I the most common understanding, and I think the best understanding is that this refers to, the water and the blood refers to Jesus' baptism and Jesus' death on the cross. And, and friends, I think that makes great sense in this context. I think it makes perfect sense because think about this. Both of those events are crucial in the redemptive 
mission of Jesus. And at both events, God testifies to the identity of his son, Jesus. So so just quickly, think with me there to John the Baptist's baptism of Jesus. What happens there in in Matthew chapter 3? Jesus is being baptized by John the Baptist, and what happens? The Spirit descends, and a voice from heaven, the The voice of the Father says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Clear testimony through the Spirit of God. Jesus is the Son of God, the Christ. And then the blood. Think about what happens on the cross. Matthew 27 says that the curtain of the temple was torn from top to bottom. The earth shakes, rocks split, tombs are open, people are raised from the dead. Even the Roman centurions say, truly, that was the Son of God. There's no doubt God is testifying through the baptism of Jesus and the cross of Christ that he is indeed the Savior of the world. Now, now friends, remember what these false teachers were claiming. We've got new, secret, hidden truths about Jesus. And these believers are left thinking, well, Are we being left out? Maybe there's something more if I just follow this new teaching. And John wants to say, no, don't be fooled. There's no secret knowledge. You're not missing out. Don't go looking for for anything else. What God has done, what God has said about Jesus, he has said and done in plain view. In actual history, God has testified to who Jesus is. If you want to, Know who Jesus is? Listen to God. Look to Jesus in the Jordan. Look at Jesus on Calvary. Look at Jesus in front of the empty tomb. God has already said all you need to know about Jesus and who he is. Have confidence in the testimony. There's one more testimony. There's this historic testimony, but there's also a personal testimony. God has certainly spoken actual history. But friends, he's still speaks today to people personally through his spirit. He is speaking right now. As the word of God is proclaimed and Jesus is lifted up, we can be assured that the spirit of God right now is giving testimony. This is what he says in verse 10. Whoever believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself. What kind of testimony is the spirit giving? What kind of message is the spirit giving? speaking this morning. Well, friends, if you're an unbeliever, if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, you've not put your trust in him, John tells us in John 16, 8, that the Spirit's work is this. He will do convicting work. He will convict the world concerning your sin, Christ's righteousness, and judgment to come. Friends, if your eyes this morning are being opened up to the reality of who Jesus is and your need for him, that's not my work. That's not West Park's work. That's the work of the Spirit. Respond to him. But John here in 1 John 5 primarily has the believer in mind. The Spirit is speaking, giving assurance to the believer. Paul said it so well in Romans 8, 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. How do you know that the Spirit of God is at work in you? God, through his Spirit, has put this testimony in you 
And, and the Spirit of God confirms these things are true. Friends, West Park planted Emmanuel in such generosity. You sent people and resources and pastors, and you sent a few ameners. And we're thankful for that. That's encouraging. And I know you've got a few left. But friends, whether or not you verbalize in a service an amen, when the word of God is preached and Jesus Christ is proclaimed for who he truly is, if you're a believer, the spirit of God will testify, bear witness that yes, these things are true. Amen. I don't know much. I don't know all I need to know. I'm not perfect, but I know this, that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and he's my only hope. As we sing, you may not close your eyes and lift your hands, but in your heart, your heart is soaring and lifting to the truths that we're singing about Jesus. Yes, those are true. That's true. That's the Spirit of God. It's not just an experience. That's the, that's the Spirit of God bearing witness with your spirit that you are indeed a child of God if you have put your trust in Him. Friends, two testimonies with two effects. Those testimonies speak loud and clear. Testimony of grace and testimony of God. And they do one of two things. They will assure you this morning that despite your own weakness, the Spirit of God is at work powerfully within you through His grace. They'll give you assurance or they'll convict you. John ends his sermon, his, his passage, this passage in a unique way. He says that the case for Christ, that the testimony of God is so sure that if you don't believe, you're calling God a liar. In John's mind, that's how certain it is. You can't just walk away and ignore it. You have to do something with the testimony of God concerning his son. Will you say yes to him this morning?